0: I'm Graham Lynch. This is Comms Day Live. Welcome to the show. Oh, very big news week this week, so let's get into it. First up this morning, Prime Minister Anthony Albanese and Home Affairs Minister and Cybersecurity Minister uh, Claire O'Neill have announced uh, who they've appointed to a new position of National Cybersecurity Coordinator. Um, Their appointment is Air Marshal Darren Goldie. And basically the job is to coordinate a whole-of-government response when there's a major cyber cybersecurity incident. So, for example, um, with the recent Optus data breach, there was a lot of coordination involved between different government departments. Well, Air Marshal Goldie will be the man brought in to do all that. So let's, let's hear from what the Prime Minister and the Home Affairs Minister
1: had to say at a press conference this morning. Today I'm very pleased to announce that Air Marshal Darren Goldie will be Australia's inaugural National Cybersecurity Coordinator. Air Marshal Goldie has served Australia with distinction for more than 30 years with the Royal Australian Air Force, including most recently as the Air Commander Australia. He will commence his term as National Cybersecurity Coordinator on the 3rd of July. Strengthening Australia's cybersecurity is a fundamental priority for my government. It underpins the way that we live, the way that we work, and the way that we communicate. And the appointment of the National Cybersecurity Coordinator will be an essential component of providing this protection. Coordinator, together with the National Office of Cybersecurity within the Department of Home Affairs will ensure we are well positioned to respond to the opportunities, but also the challenges that are there in this digital age. In this role, Air Marshal Goldie will support the Minister of Cybersecurity to lead the coordination of national cybersecurity policy, responses to major cyber incidents, work of of whole-of-government cyber incident preparedness efforts and, of course, strengthening Commonwealth cybersecurity capability. This work will be done in collaboration with key policy, operational and security agencies. It builds on the work that we're doing not just in government but also with the private sector. Earlier this year I hosted a a cyber security industry roundtable with leaders of business as well as with the public sector uh, in Sydney. Uh, Minister O'Neill has been responsible for the ongoing coordination there. We see this as a vital component of what modern government needs to do to respond to what are new and emerging challenges which are there, but also the incredible opportunities that come from advances in new technology. Now I'll ask uh, the Minister uh, to respond and then you'll...
2: Thank you PM and good morning everyone. Cybersecurity is without question one of the most concerning national security challenges that we face. When we arrived in government, we found this policy area in an absolute mess. There is just no question about that. We had no coordination of cyber activity across the government. We were about five years behind where we should have been on public policy. In fact, we didn't even have a cybersecurity minister, so it's not too surprising that we ended up where we were. The PM has taken control of this problem, making a decision as soon as we were elected that for the first time Australia would have a cabinet minister for cyber security and we have undertaken an enormous amount of work over this previous year to try to play catch-up. Now today a really important piece of the jigsaw puzzle is being put in place with the appointment of Air Marshal Goldie as Australia's first national cyber coordinator. Air Marshal Goldie will drive the work across government in cybersecurity with force and velocity that is needed to meet what is a very substantial and seriously growing challenge for our nation. His term will commence on the 3rd of July, 2023. Uh, As the PM said, his roles broadly will be to lead the work of cybersecurity across government. This is really important because what we've seen in the Australian government, common to governments overseas, is that cybersecurity responsibilities are strewn across a whole range of parts of government departments and indeed in the private sector and the community as well. So both, um, Air Marshal Goldie's role in part will be to bring all that activity together. Air Marshal Goldie will also be leading cyber incident response for our country. Um, I want you to understand how serious a problem it was that when we arrived in office, there was no cyber incident response coordination occurring in the Australian government. That is an extraordinary thing and we should not have been there. So Air Marshal Goldie's work will be very important in making sure that when we do experience significant national cyber incidents, there is one person across government who is going to coordinate the national effort to manage those incidents. Air Marshal Goldie will help us prepare for future cyber incidents. Many of you will know that the Australian Government, for the first time, has started to engage in um, significant wargaming exercises with sectors where cyber incidents are going to pose a national security threat if they occur, and Air Marshal Goldie will take on that responsibility. Air Marshal Goldie will also play a really important role in helping us deal with a very significant issue we face, and that is Commonwealth cybersecurity, a very big problem for our country. So I'm very pleased to be here today with Air Marshal Goldie, and if you're comfortable, Prime Minister, I'll hand him to make some comments.
1: Uh,
0: Thank you, Prime Minister. Thank you, Minister. Uh, Ladies and gentlemen, good morning. Uh, As the Minister said, uh, I'm Air Marshal Goldie. I've had the privilege to serve the Australian people for the last 30 years in the Australian Defence Force, and I look forward to continuing to serve in this new role. Okay, moving on. Uh, This week, we finally saw the verdict in Telstra and TPG's appeal against an Australian Competition and Consumer Commission decision not to allow their proposed regional network sharing deal. Now, just to, um, uh, to, I guess, recap (laughs) what that deal was about. Basically, TPG uh, doesn't have the network reach of Telstra in the bush, but they have Spectrum that Telstra doesn't have. So they did a deal where TPG trades in Spectrum. Telstra trades in the right for TPG to access its radio network, but with separate calls. And TPG's... Coverage um, would have expanded to eclipse Optus. Now, Optus weren't too happy about this. They, they saw it as a death knell for, for competition or their ability specifically to compete in terms of their investment incentives. The ACCC agreed. Um, Next the deal, Telstra and TPG took it to the Australian Competition Tribunal. So, um, in the end, they agreed with the ACCC's view that it would uh, be a negative for, for competition, and speci- specifically the phraseology they used was that the detriments outweighed the benefits. That, 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 that was how they viewed it. So anyway, by happenstance, um, Optus CEO Kelly bayer Osmarin was holding a media day out at the Optus campus at Macquarie Park, uh, literally as the decision was coming through. Um, and here's what she and also her MD for marketing and revenue, Matt Williams, had to say about the verdict.
3: Um, yeah, so from I think from the perspective of someone living in regional Australia, what they want is more investment in connectivity, more innovation in connectivity, and more options. If you have a competitive market, you maximize the chance of that occurring. And a competitive market means providing an incentive to as many providers as possible, to invest in connectivity in that region. The decision that's been made by the ACCC and the Tribunal maximizes that. Had they granted uh, permission for Telstra and TPG to merge their regional networks, they would have created a scenario which entrenched Telstra's dominance in those areas where you do only have one choice, regional Australia. There would have been no possibility for anybody to compete with that in the future. And As a result of that, it would have ensured that there was less investment going into regional Australia and less choice. That's why they've done their job and done the right thing by rejecting that proposal. So I think if you're in regional Australia, it's a day for celebration where you can rejoice and say, we have a continued competitive environment that should provide greater incentive to all three providers of communications infrastructure in this country to invest and compete for our business and to leverage new technologies like the
1: ones we were talking about before to enhance that even further. Can I add to that and just say, and I think it's also important to uh, recognize and remember where we are today. Because today we have a vast regional network uh, serving a large number of customers and actually growing quite strongly. And so we are already present in many of those areas providing uh, great quality services, amazing combinations of value and also unique experiences. Uh, as we talked about, and so that is the case today. And of course, because of who we are, we also do it in a way that is uh, much more um, competitive and compelling uh, than one of our competitors.
3: And and actually, uh, this is again where we need help in changing the narrative, because unless you're in the 1.4% of Australians living in the most remote areas, you do have access to the Optus connectivity, and often our network is less congested and higher performing than what you're already getting. People still tell stories of, uh, you know, 10 years ago I tried the Optus Network and, but we've invested $1.5 to $1.7 billion a year in building out our coverage and our propositions. So if you're in regional Australia, you should be giving us a go. And all that for about 20% less.
0: Well, fighting words indeed there, and and perhaps um, somewhat mitigated by the revelation the day after that Optus had literally emailed lots of its customers that morning to tell them that their their mobile um, monthly plan prices were going up, in some cases, by significant percentages. Um, I also just wanted to clarify that Telstra and TPG would not agree with that uh, characterisation of their deal as being a merger. Um, their plan was to have separate network calls and just share the radio access network at the end as well as the spectrum. Um, now Telstra and TBG didn't um, didn't put themselves forward as Kelly and, and uh, Matt did to talk about this. They did provide written statements, but both both of them on the lines that they were disappointed in the verdict and they were waiting. Uh, awaiting the release of the um, tribunal's full findings, um, which won't take place for another three weeks before they provide a um, a, a full analysis of of, uh, what they think of the decision. They may, of course, appeal in the future if they find an error in law, or they may just go their own separate ways. Who knows? We'll see. Um, As I mentioned, um, Optus was holding a media day um, this week, and... uh, most of the senior executives um, uh, had, a, had a turn at talking about their specific dominion within Optus. And um, one of those was Gladys Berejiklian, who's um, the head of enterprise um, at Optus. And she had some very interesting things to say about Optus's approach to partnerships. Let's see if, what she had to say.
4: Uh, we're really excited by the opportunity to uh, expand uh, to more enterprises and businesses what we're offering in the technology space and uh, some recent examples include our wonderful partnership with the Super Retail Group and Race here which we're pleased about and with them we're using our 5G fixed wireless technology to really support them and grow their business, the business that's going from strength to strength with many different brands. Uh, And that's just one example of what we're able to do. But what is really critical for us in the business and enterprise space is to make sure we have that enterprise and business grade capacity, um, that reliability, the strength of the network uh, and also the ability to be multiple places offering the, the best technology available. Uh, another example of a partnership in recent times which is cutting edge technologies with Torba Council in Queensland where uh, we're using Internet of Things technology to support them in working out through the water meters um, where, uh, where leaks are in the system. So it's not only for, for them but a good way, a cost efficient way of managing um, their, their business, their service, but also um, in identifying leaks and, and, and conserving water. So they're just two recent examples of the partnerships we're forging. And what's really important for us as a business is not only to to um, be able to provide that at scale, but also to make sure that we provide every business with the specific needs that matter to them. And that's where I think Office is really different in the market. Um, we can tailor needs and we can also offer that really high-grade enterprise solution. Uh, and excitingly, as Kelly mentioned, we're also um, looking forward to providing uh, enterprise-scale capacity in some of our network's features in some of the great things we're doing on the consumer side. So that is um, really um, coming up in the next little while and something we're very excited about.
0: Okay. Now, to finish off today, um, let's look to the future. 6G. Now, of course, we're only two years into the fifth generation of mobile, so you you could argue it's premature to talk about 6G at this stage. But I've been hearing a lot from industry about 6G development over the past couple of months, and it's definitely on. Um, A lot of thinking is taking place um, about the 6G world, and indeed at the recent G7 summit in Japan, um, there was discussion at the highest levels Uh, about a vision for 6G uh, across the Western industrialised countries. So it's it's been um, talked about at that level. and Inevitably, uh, reality follows. Um, Now, we're still very much at the R&D stage of 6G. um, But we're already hearing about some of the concepts that are going to be defined, developed, um, manufactured and commercialised for 6G. And I had a chance to chat about them with um, the Australian-based lead for a Boston company called MathWorks this week. Um, her name is Ruth Ann Marchant. And uh, they develop um, simulation and modeling software that um, is being used um, to develop all sorts of things, but specifically wireless networks and specifically 6G technology.
5: Yeah, so um, as you, you know, probably rightly know, um, 6g is expected to be using frequencies that are much higher on the spectrum than um, the current um, you know 4g 5g technology so you know that's going to present itself with some additional uh, challenges along the way um, but it could open up opportunities because um, some of that spectrum band uh, isn't uh, in wide use right now so it's going to um, kind of open that access up to um, customers.
0: Yeah, okay. And we're talking, I mean, right, right now, um, you know, m- most, m- most um, um, radio communications takes place quite far down the spectrum band, you know, mm-hmm. some sort of the lower gigahertz, megahertz ranges. Um, we're talking going up to above 100 gigahertz. So that, that has some challenges, doesn't it, in terms of the distance of a signal and how far it can transmit.
5: Yeah, um, it it certainly does, and um, as as such, there's going to need to be some uh, additional technologies to kind of help mitigate some of those challenges. Um, so, for example, um, like reconfigurable intelligent surfaces to help with um, kind of think of it as a new way of performing beamforming, um, so that. We can you know dynamically reflect and refract and manipulate some of these these signals to um, move uh, help the signal get to you know the ultimate end user's device
0: yeah i'm quite fascinated by by reconfigurable intelligence services i'm trying to visualize what this is going to look like so my understanding is that they they're they're, um, they have an electrical current in them that's the key to making it work Um, but what, what will it look like and how ubiquitous might these things become? You know, are we going to have one in every family home, for example, to boost a 6G signal in the rumpus room? You know, like, is that the potential for this kind of stuff?
5: So, I mean, that's in terms of what it's actually going to look like. It's not really something that I, I really know either, right? I think it's a really interesting question. Um, and you can kind of imagine like what you said, um, will we have these devices in our rumpus rooms. Um, you know, it, it might look like um, uh, some, something on somebody's window, for example, um, as a way to help with um, understanding uh, what's inside the environment and redirecting that way is kind of one potential use case. Yeah. But okay. I also think about it as like being on the top of buildings and, you know, if there's some obstruction that comes in the way, like a car or a big bus and it's moving or through um, the signal path, uh, these services will be able to redirect signals so that we can um, ultimately get to um, the end user's device.
0: Yeah. So, so obviously it's very early days. We're, we're, yeah. It's 2023 and we're talking about something that might not be commercially available till say 2033. Um, right, but but I I just find it fascinating because this this potentially I mean this seems to me and, and I've been covering telecommunications for about thirty years so mm. I don't I don't get easily excited anymore but this yeah. seems, this seems to me like a bit of a game changer in terms of you know one of the biggest challenges you have of cellular networks obviously is coverage and particularly the quality of coverage you know yeah. like like the you know, not, you don't want to be on one or two bars all the time if you're in a, just because you live in a country town or something. And this seems to me to be a game changer in terms of presumably whether to be cost-effectively maximising mm-hmm. the reach of a network.
5: Yeah, I, I agree with you there. Um, and I'm, I'm actually hoping that it will be able to help me when I take the train down to work. There's some sections that are like, as the train moves, I just drop out of, of range so hopefully this kind of technology would be able to help in use cases like that as well
0: okay well one of, one of the other technologies that um people are talking about in regards to 6g is, is what, what what's officially phrased joint communication and sensing and, and yeah. what, what that is in practice is is the you know the ability for a mobile network to also be a sensory network you know to detect yeah. objects and movement and that kind of thing
5: I think that this, um, the joint communication and sensing technology kind of has a couple of ways we can look at it. So one of it is this ability to sense and detect objects like you mentioned that perhaps are obstructing a path between say a transmission node or a receiving node. Um, and then this information can actually be used to help improve the overall network system performance um, because that information can then, that sensed information can be then used perhaps in conjunction with, um, you know, sensor, uh, the, uh, the reconfigurable intelligent um, services, for example, to adjust, make adjustments um, maybe in real time.
0: Yeah.
5: Okay. So that's, that's one way that this technology could be used to kind of improve overall network performance. Okay. I understand.
0: Okay. Um, yeah. Now the, the, the other sort of third aspect we've gone through to already, the other sort of third key um, from what I can see a sort of defining parameter of what is g is this concept of non-terrestrial networks where, where basically the, the space realm simply becomes yeah. part of the terrestrial realm in terms of, of a, of a network and, and, just by happenstance, today in our daily publication, Comms Day, our lead story is about a, a company called Laserlight that plans to do free space optics from satellites mm. to the Earth and then meld them um, meld them with uh, fibre optic communications on the ground. So it's all just one seamless optical signal you know, from a MEO-SAT, yeah, yeah. A meosat to, a, to a, a, a mirror on the ground that then goes into a fibre optic connection to the end destination. As an alternative yep. to submarine cables, right? So it's very, yeah. very interesting. So you've got you've got this sort of concept now, where where space and terrestrial is is moving into the same domain in terms yeah. of 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 a, of a network. Now that surely presents some amazing challenges. I would have thought from a, a network management point of view and, and so on. And I guess that's that's where you guys come in. You know, you're you're developing the software to help people. Meet those challenges so can you tell me about your thinking on that particular problem
5: yeah I mean for that particular problem um, the way I can view it like we've got this kind of convergence of different um, approaches so like uh, connection with satellites as well as um, that like uh, terrestrial based communication network um, and I think the ability to simulate model and simulate as a way to help design the system will be really important because you can get a sense of how this integration what, what this integration will look like so by running simulations you can get a sense of how they can be connected optimize across the system um, and Uh, See what the results are like, and then adjust um, as we go forward. So it gives a sense, gives gives um, a better sense of what is possible um, and what could be limitations.
0: That's Comms Day Live for this week. We'll see you next time.